And now hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to see you on this dreary morning. But what better cure for a rainy, dreary weekend than to be in the Lord's house together and seeing your beautiful, smiling faces all together worshiping our amazing God together. There's no better cure. I don't know if you guys were locked up in the house because it was rainy. On Memorial Day weekend, that's not what you want, right? Most of you guys are like, where's outside swimming pools and start of summer? That's not what you expected. But what a cure for that. That Sunday, no matter the weather, we get to come together and see each other be blessed by each other's presence, to be encouraged by each other's words, to see each other smiling, or maybe even weeping, but to know that we're not alone in this crazy world, that this whole process of living the Christian life and growing in spiritual maturity is not an individual project, but it's a group project. And they get to worship God together. Pretty good cure. What a blessing it was to hear from Allison. Allison, thank you. Thank you for sharing and thank you for um, the work that God's called you to do, being faithful and living that out. Most of you guys don't know is God is, oh, not most you don't know, but God is good. <laughs> God is good. But what most of you guys know that our, even our happenstance, how we got into the Gambia, how we got to meet Allison, everything, just the way it was orchestrated, it was just stuff like, it wasn't intentional, it wasn't this incredible intentional strategic plan that we mapped out from the very beginning, we knew exactly what we were gonna do. God just orchestrated this in so many incredible little ways. And here we are attempting to be obedient to God and being called to a nation um, that we really 
don't know much about, but God's given us incredible partners that we can partner with. So we thank you, Allison, for being one of those partners that are faithfully walking what God called you to do. She shared some stories about persistent prayer, and it fits so well with our, our scripture this morning. Our, our reading focuses on two parables shared by Jesus that on the surface really seem to talk about the nature of prayer. Something along the lines of persistent prayer and righteous prayer. That's what you can call this sermon if you wanted to. Uh, what type of prayer is good? Persistent and righteous, right? You can say that and be like, oh, that's, we're done. Go home. <laughs> or how to pray. Be persistent and humble. Okay, we're done again. Now, mind you, those are good truths to take from this text. But I can't help but see a little bit more there. One word that just kept jumping out at me from this text is, especially from the first parable, is the word justice, right? I saw it, so, I think he said this at least four times, or it says justice four times in the NIV, and then it says the word just multiple times as well. And when I think of justice, I can't help myself, I think of a courtroom scene. I don't know how many of you guys do that, but I love courtroom scenes in movies and TV shows, right? Anybody else? Law and order, anyone? Am I allowed to admit that? No? Are you guys willing to admit it or to share that and say, no, I just admitted it. So you guys are allowed to admit it if you wanted to. No? Okay. A few good men, right? I want the truth. One of the best scenes in a movie ever. Legally blonde. Yeah, exactly. I was wondering if that would get a better response. I was trying to, I was trying to gauge the audience. Would we get a better response from a few good men or legally blonde? I wasn't sure. So I guess legally blonde is a better... <laughs> I love it. I mean, I mean, to me, courtroom scenes are so much fun in movies because for me, I think maybe something about us, maybe true to us, something deep down, is we, we crave to see justice done. We want to see the evildoer get what he deserves. We want the righteous one exonerated. Something in our hearts, I truly believe, longs for justice. And today's text, I really believe, speaks into our desire for justice and what makes us justified. And really, it looks at justice in two different parables that tie together. So let's take a f- closer look at the first parable. Or, yeah, the first parable. We have two main characters. The first character is an unrighteous judge. He doesn't care what God thinks of him. He doesn't particularly respect people. He's a man who doesn't care what other people think of him. He doesn't care if people think he's a jerk. He's powerful, seemingly untouchable. We don't know his root motivations. Is it money? Is it pride? Is it power? Is he a jerk just because he's a jerk? We don't know. He could just wake up and be like, I feel like being angry today. We don't know. We just know that he is kind of a jerk. But then there's a second character. And she's known as the persistent widow. As a widow, she's utterly vulnerable. In that culture, she lacks money or power to defend herself. She is by herself because if she had someone else, they would be probably the one bringing this case before the judge. So she know, we know that she is by herself. She's basically nothing. But one thing she does have is persistence. She persistently pleads her case before this unrighteous judge over and over. This idea of annoyingly being persistent. And he ends up giving in. He grants her justice. Not because he has this change of heart and he, was, and he wants to become a nice guy. Not because he sees the merit of her arguments. Not because he sees, well, you're right. You deserve justice. But because of his own self-interest. He wants to do whatever is necessary to get rid of this, get this widow off his back. He's the way sometimes I am with my kids. 
And you don't want to be this way with a parent. This is not the way you want to be. But let's be adults. Let's be real. Sometimes these kids can nag you and annoy you enough that you just give in. Am I right? Don't, I'm not going to admit this to all my kids. I'm glad they're not in here. Right? But you just don't have energy left. You're like, fine, get the iPad. I just don't care. Stop asking me. Just go. Go watch whatever cartoon you want. I don't care. Right? They can nag you enough. Right? Oh, am I the only bad parent in the room? Come on. Don't leave me hanging now. Right? Thank you. That's what it seems. It's very self-interest motivated. This, this judge was saying, just get off my back. I'll do whatever you want. Okay, you're annoying. Verse 4, for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, that because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Now, mind you, she's powerless. So does he fear an actual attack, right? I mean, is he picturing her coming with claws here? The image is more, will she keep on attacking me with her annoyingness, her nagging? And at the service level, this parable seems about persistent prayer. It seems like Jesus is saying, don't just pray, pray with persistence, the end. But there's more to it than just encouraging the habit of persistent prayer. Rather, this text is showing us a certain type of prayer, a prayer to be given justice. The widow's experiencing injustice, and she's asking that the judge would intervene and make things right. Now, we don't know what injustice is happening to her, but we can imagine her land could have been taken from her illegally, seized from her. She could be taken advantage of because of her powerless state, because of her widowed estate, or other worse injustices. But she needed justice. There's injustice happening all around the world right now, isn't there? But when we look around the world and we see it today, we, we see the same thing, women taking advantage of, children taking advantage of, and we cry out for justice, don't we? We see the injustices of the world and you long for justice. And Jesus is saying that if a terrible, unjust, selfish jerk of a judge will bring forth justice, how much more will God who is the definition of justice, bring forth justice. In other words, hear this, Jesus is saying, take heart, be comforted, as you see all the injustice in the world, as you wait for his return, he will bring forth justice, and he will make all things right. The reality is, judgment is coming, and God's judgment is good news. Our culture tends to look at judgment as a bad thing, the day of judgment or judgment day, Terminator 2, judgment day. Once again, dating myself. But the day of the Lord in the Old Testament was a day of joy and vindication for God's people. The day of the Lord was a day that was longed for. We long for the day of the Lord. Many popular preachers in our culture will openly admit that they won't talk about judgment because it feels and sounds negative. All culture asks, why does God have to judge at all, right? And I say this because without judgment, there is no justice. Without judgment, there is no justice. Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, quotes a Yale philosopher, Miroslav Volf, who argues against cheap forgiveness and the need for God's justice. He grew up in the Balkan Peninsula, which was ravaged by war and reckless genocide. He knew friends and family members who died because of the injustice of evil men. He believes that it takes the quiet comfort of a suburban home 
to stand in judgment against the idea of God's justice. Instead, he says, the promise of God's judgment gives true hope for those who have suffered. One day, evil will end and the world will be set to right. Do you see? The ones who've seen true injustice in the world craves and desires real justice. And if we trust God to make our justice, we can truly even, even forgive even the worst of our enemies. We no longer need to create our own justice. God is our vindication. When we believe this, it gives us the capacity to stand against injustice with boldness, but also to be released from the poison of revenge and bitterness. When we see justice belongs to the Lord. About two years ago, I served on the executive committee of the SBC. And during a meeting in September at the EC, was asked to vote on the idea of giving full transparency to the investigative team that was working on abuse in the SPC. During that meeting, I had the honor of meeting a young woman who was a survivor who experienced horrible injustices. She shared her story with me, and she spoke in, up in front of this large group of people with such strength and courage. She was taking a stand against injustice and wrongs of this world, in full confidence of a savior that even if her stand didn't work, she will persist, because in the end, her God will bring justice. She's not a weak victim. She found her victory in Christ and now has the courage to stand against injustice everywhere and still offer the hope of Christ to all who will receive. We need the good news of God's justice when we experience the brokenness of this world. Let me say that again. We need the good news of God's justice when we experience the brokenness of this world. Guys, this is the reason this parable is being told deep down. In verse 1, 18, 1 says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And not give up, sorry. I, I, quoted, I flipped out the order there. The first one is the NIV. It says that Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So in other words, the purpose of this parable is to pray, don't give up. I love how the ESV says it's so they can pray and not lose heart. The purpose of the parable is to be persistent in prayer, but the real purpose of this is stay persistent in prayer. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Yes, there's injustice. Yes, you see it. Yes, it's still happening, but persist because God's justice will happen. Do you see that? Pray, Jesus tells us, when you're experiencing justice and long for the kingdom of God. Pray without ceasing and do not give up. Do not lose heart. Justice is coming soon. But this also provokes a problem. We want God to judge evil and injustice, but what about when we are the evil and unjust who deserve judgment? Because what if we're real about it? Because there are those times when we think, well, those evildoers, and we can list off the names, they're pretty bad, but then all of a sudden we're just honest and real with ourselves and we're like, Wait a minute, I'm pretty bad too. The thoughts that I've thought, things that I've done, when the masks finally come off, what do we do with that? Leads us to our second parable. 
In the second parable, we meet two brand new characters, and there are two men who go up to the temple to pray. The first is a Pharisee. And the Pharisee, you guys know, was a member of a particular religious party. They were meticulous in their obedience to God, very serious. They cared very much about keeping the Jewish people separate from the Gentiles. They were separate, they were holy, and they were just did all the rules, created more rules, created rules on rules on rules, so that they're separate from everybody else. The second character was a tax collector. Tax collectors were very unpopular amongst the Jews in the first century. Pharisees were trying to remain separate, pure, and undefiled from the pagan Gentiles. The tax collectors were actively raising funds for the Roman Empire that was oppressing and subjugating the people. They were opportunists who betrayed their own family men and their own country for easy money. You'd be like, yeah, I hate tax collectors too. Let's just be real. And for the hearers of this parable, the expectations of the audience is that the Pharisee is obviously the good guy and the tax collector is obviously the bad guy. But Jesus does a little flip you. He, he, he creates a grand reversal of expectations. You know? He creates this crazy flip. And his story is aimed at those who trust in their own righteousness and have judgmental contempt on others. The Pharisee stands tall and proud before the altar of God. He lists his resume of how awesome he is, right? Instead of confessing his sins, he, he confesses the sins of all the people around him, including the tax collector. He thinks God's pretty lucky to be like, God, pretty lucky to have you on your team, right? I'm pretty good, right? He's, he's literally saying like, well, I do this, I give this amount, I show up at this. It's like, it's like showing up in the church and be like, oh, Lawrence, I play this instrument. I know the Bible this well. I'd, or it's like showing up to a, a coach and being like, coach, you're lucky to have me. You know how good a three-point shooter I am? Lucky to have me. And what coach is going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm really lucky to have you. There's an indication in the Greek language that he's not praying to God, but to himself, actually. This isn't a prayer of worship. It says one commentator calls it a self-eulogy. Uh, there's a, a tense here in the Greek language where he's not actually addressing it in worship. He's literally saying, talk about himself here, self-aggrandizing. The tax collector is so aware of his unworthiness before the holiness of God that he, he stands far off. And I love this imagery because he beats his chest. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've, I've been there. You know, I've been there. Where I'm so frustrated at myself. So frustrated at even my own heart. I'm just kind of like, oh, what's wrong with me? I just, just, I, I can't help it. He beats his chest. He knows the greatness of his sin. He's overwhelmed by it. He's, he's floored by it. He's I, I just overcome. He lists no good works. He doesn't offer, well, at least I've given most of my money away. He doesn't try to, to well, you don't know you don't know how, how hard it was or my parents did this to me or whatever. He doesn't say any of that stuff. No excuses. He just knows and acknowledges his, his need, his sin before God. He just, he pleads with empty hands for the mercy of God. And then here's the, the shocking conclusion. Here's, here's the shocking thing that Jesus says to everybody who would listen. Luke 18, 14 says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, justified before God. 
Justified or justification is an important theological concept. It's so important, like the Protestant Reformation happened like kind of over this word. When I was in seminary, I had to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? In the Old English. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I didn't have it memorized. I had to look it up and type it in. I'm just saying. I didn't, I didn't have it still memorized. But let me say that again. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth, I just wanted to say it again, all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is that which gives us right standing before God. Justification is what makes us feel valid and worthy of this life. And even if you're not a believer, I'll bet that you're looking for justification somewhere. Even if you're not a believer, I bet you you're looking for justification somewhere. Our self-justification places or projects can include academic or athletic achievements, careers, kids, wealth, possessions, fame, power, so much more. I mean, one of the saddest things I see is how many of us as parents try to have self-justification by the way we have our kids be successful, right? This naturally leads to comparison, a sort of comparative justification. And comparative justification is the idea that I know I'm not righteous, but at least I'm not as bad as that other guy. How do you know you're engaging in comparative justification? Um, do you tend to look for what is wrong with people? Judge people? Or feel the need to gossip about people? When you read this parable, did you go, whew, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee? <laughs> yeah, did that get you guys? Did that get you guys? Yeah, that's sneaky, huh? Comparison is a sword that cuts both ways. There's always someone a little worse. There's always someone worse than you, right? But there's also someone always better than you too. We might feel a little better about someone when we see someone who is worse than us, but we also feel a sense of condemnation and worthlessness when we see someone who's doing it better than us. Right? I remember growing up as a kid, I'd be like, man, why is Billy so much better than me at running or whatever it may be. My mom might be like, oh, at least you're better than him at, you know, math or something. I shouldn't have done that. It's so Asian stereotype. Dang it. No. <laughs> I should have been like, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> but whatever it may be. But I remember at one point I'd be like, no, why is Billy better at everything than me? Literally, he's better at school and, and math and athletics. I'm like, no, that's not fair. That person can't be better at everything. Because there's always somebody better than you at something. Often we think we can earn our justification through works. We can't. If we, like the Pharisees, think we can earn right standing before God, we have too low a view of God's holiness and standards for righteousness. And we're not being real with ourselves. No one gets to strut before the glory of God's throne. No one. No one, I'm gonna say that again, no one can dare come before the majesty of God's throne and really be like, look how good I am. I like it like this. If I was like, thought I was really good at basketball, 
I'm using basketball again, because I wanted to avoid the stereotypes. I'm just kidding. And I was really good at basketball, and I'm like, man, look how good I am. Right, look how awesome, I'm, I'm so good at this game, I'm so good at all the elements of the game. I can't go to prime Michael Jordan and be like, look how good I am, Michael. No, because I'd be so bad in comparison to him, right? When, the, when that level is so much higher, guys, no one can strut before God because his glory is so much beyond us. None of us can strut before his throne. For this reason, the end of the parable is a statement about humility. All true faith is humble faith. We will either come to God trusting in our own goodness or his goodness. And only one of those options gives us justification. So the question that needs to be answered is how does this work? How can God forgive us somehow? How can God be a God of justice? Like see earlier in the first parable, we needed God to be a God of judgment. Right? We need God to come down upon evil and sin and judgment. But then how then can we be justified when we are sinful and don't, can, cannot strut before the throne? And once again, that's the brilliance of the gospel, isn't it? That is the brilliance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has made a way to be both just and our justifier. By sending Jesus, God made a way to end sin without ending us. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived but could not live. He died a death in which he took upon himself the penalty of our sin. He rose again to conquer the power of evil and death. And when we have faith in him, the great exchange takes place. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. When we trust in Jesus, he takes our sin and we are credited with his righteousness. See, here's the beautiful truth of this gospel. The beautiful truth is that, and I love it, I have to quote Tim Keller again because he recently passed and he's on my heart, is that we are, our sin is greater and more heinous than you can even imagine. It is. You're worse off than you realize. But God's grace and his love through Jesus Christ is bigger, more expansive than you ever thought imaginable. That's the truth of the gospel, is that we have a just God. We have a just God. So you can be confident that when we look out of this world and you're weeping over injustice, and please, your hearts should weep sometimes over injustice. It should. Your heart should break over the injustice that you see in this world and the injustice, and your heart should persist in prayer. You should be praying for injustice to end, but as you're doing so, you should be taking heart because we have a God of justice who will bring forth final judgment. But in that judgment, we will not fall because our righteousness was given to us by Jesus. He made us just so that we can stand, not like the Pharisee, but like the tax collector, we can leave righteous. We can leave vindicated because we came with nothing and he gave us everything. Jesus gives us the tools to live in this age till he turns. What did, right before, in chapter 17, the end of chapter 17, he literally talks about the coming, his coming. Until he's coming, here's how you should live. And then he's giving us the tools to do that in chapter 18, these two parables. He's saying, yes, it's going to be hard. Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. He promises that, right? 
But he says, take heart. He's literally saying this here in Luke. He's saying, guys, I'm coming again. But till I do, till I do, it's going to be hard. You will see injustice. You're going to see situations that are not fair. You're going to see landlords take advantage of people. You're going to say, that's not fair. You're going to see people who are abused be taken advantage of. And you're going to say, that's not fair. You're going to see hurt after hurt. You're going to see children suffer, innocent suffer. And your heart's going to scream out, it's not fair. Over and over again, I promise you in your life, you haven't done it yet, you will. You're going to scream out, it's not fair. It's going to happen. But we have hope. We have hope that he will make it right. So in this in-between time, we hold on to that hope and we persist in prayer. And we say, God, right now it's not fair. It's not. But you're using us to make it fair. And in that time, in that in-between time, I trust that one day you will make it right. Please continue using us to make it fair. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God that gives us the tools of prayer as a means of reminding ourselves, God, that you are the just God that will make all things right. That as we persist in prayer for justice, you're reminding our hearts that you are the God of justice. God, you will make it all good and right and true. So God, we come humbly like the tax collector. We don't want to come with a comparative justification or a comparative religion. We come empty, just trusting in your righteousness alone. The work of Jesus Christ. So God, will you use us to make just a little bit of fairness in the world as your kingdom advances? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.